Hello, and welcome to Spec Speak Science, the Spec Starter Prep podcast hosted by senior application scientist Patricia Atkins. In this episode, join Spec Starter Prep as we look at the history of pesticides, the development of modern pesticides, and how those pesticides are applied and regulated. With that, here's Patricia Atkins for this installment of Spec Speak Science. about the history of pesticides today. Now, the origin of almost all pest control comes from a universal experience. It's the human experience, it's the animal experience, it's trying to provide for our own comfort and our own health. So when you go back to the pre-agricultural period, the pre-husbandry period, about 20, 30,000 BC, this is the main goal. It was to increase their comfort, to increase their health, to stop pests from, from eating their food and from eating them. As you uh, started doing some hunting and gathering, it actually increased the effectiveness of hunting and gathering. If you are not battling the pests and you're not, uh, you know, itching or scratching or sick from from catching a disease from pests, then you are more efficient in your daily activities. The game changer became agriculture. Forest harvesting around 20,000 B.C., domestication around 10,000 B.C. This was now protecting and increasing your food supply as well as your health and comfort. This was all based on a bunch of different different compounds, different techniques. You had things like people just physically removing the pests, and then you started getting into applying compounds in order to stop pests from preying on you. Some of the earliest chemical pesticides were sulfur. In Sumer in China around 2000 BC, they would apply sulfur to drive away the pests. In Rome and in Carthage, if you really wanted to discourage growth of agricultural fields when you would raid a a country or you would create war with a country, then you would salt their fields. You don't add sodium to their field, you'd kill off all their plants, and you would damage the agriculture for that particular city or country. And then you start getting into modern-day agriculture in the 1800s. You are now have tackling specific problems with chemicals. Things like copper was used during the 1800s when there was a widespread disease going around grapevines. It was called the French wine blight, and it was a, a powder, powdery a mildew or mold blight that was killing off all the grapevines. So they would apply these chemical pesticides in order to stop the, the wine blight. As I said, some of the earliest inner, uh, earliest pesticides are inorganic pesticides. You'd have arsenic. So the Romans would use ant baits made of arsenic and honey. They would spread arsenic to stop body lice. Modern times, or at least late 1800s up through the 1900s, you would have arsenates and arsenites like copper and sodium applied to orchards. Sodium arsenate was actually applied to orchards up until the 1950s. And copper arsenates are still used in some forms of lumber that are used outdoors. Lead was also a widely used compound for pest control. Lead arsenate was considered to be an alternative to a copper arsenate that was very popular in the 1800s called Paris Green. So it was supposed to be a safer alternative to Paris Green. And this was used up until the 1960s. It was only banned in 1988. Then you have mercury. Mercury was also used as pest control, so uh, farmers would apply it to seeds. So you'd have organic mercury compounds applied to seeds, and it would poison the rats. It would keep the rats away from the seeds they would use to grow the crops. And this was used up until the 1920s. 
Early organic chemicals were mostly all natural controls. They were natural materials and animals. The chemical versions of them were not usually known or synthesized until much later. Some early organic chemicals were formic acid. These were isolated from ants around 1671. You also had plants as sources of pest control. You had chrysanthemums, which would give you the pyrethrums. Well, chrysanthemums were well known as a pest control from 1000 BC. The actual chemical, the pyrethrum, was only isolated though in 1924. Tobacco, again, can be used as a pest control, used in the 1500s, but the compound of nicotine was only isolated in 1828. And then roots, something like rhodonone, which was widely used in the 1600s, but the compound rhodonone was only isolated in 1895. When you get to the true synthetic compounds, the true synthetic pesticides, these came about in the late 1800s and started the chemical revolution. Mostly these synthetics were a response to World War I. There were disease vectors, there were flies, there were mosquitoes, they would cause malaria and, and dengue fever and all sorts of other diseases. And prior to World War I, you would use natural compounds, something like uh, the pyrethrum or the chrysanthemums. But there's limited to uses for the natural pesticides. I mean, they are a natural product, so they had a limited yield. They also had growing cycles. They don't always flower at the same time, so you had to harvest it within the growing cycles. And early purification and concentration could be very difficult. And finally, it was very expensive to get these compounds. When synthetics started to be developed, one of the biggest benefits was inexpensive. It was cheap to, to make and cheap to use. It was broad spectrum, meaning it could be used for everything. So you give a, gave a dose of synthetic pesticide and suddenly, you know, all your pests died off. And it seemed to have low mammal toxicity. So it was seemingly safe for humans. And the good thing at the time is it was insoluble and persistent. So you could apply it. It wouldn't wash away. It wouldn't wear away over time. So it would be effective for a very long period of time. Now, modern pesticide classes, or uh, the synthesized pesticide classes, really started out with some of the earliest synthetic insecticides, the organochlorines. They were very highly persistent. They are now in limited use around the world, but an example of this would be like DDT or BHC. Then you have your organophosphates, again, early synthetic insecticides, and they were really meant to replace some of the organochlorines. A uh, famous example is malathion, is one of those pesticides. Then you have the pyrethrin and pyrethroids. These are the natural and the synthetic insecticides, and you had the early use pyrethrins, and then you had the later use of the synthetics, the pyrethroids. They uh, are things like pyrethrin, permethrin. You have a whole uh, class of different pyrethrin, pyrethroid compounds. Some of the newer pesticides are the nicotinoids or the neonicotinoids. The synthetic neonicotinoids were developed in the 1980s and 1990s, and uh, they became very popular very quickly. One of the most popular is imidacloprid, which is still in wide use. Unfortunately, over the last oh, dozen or so years, we've seen increased uh, collapse of beehives or bee colonies, and they are blaming these neonicotinoid compounds for that. You also have carbamates. They were the insecticide of choice in the 1950s. They were widely used and wide, in widespread use. One of the most popular pesticides in history, carbaryl, it's also called seven, was uh, used as a carbamate pesticide. Then you have sulfonureas. These are herbicides that were developed in the 1980. They first were used, though, as drugs and antibiotics. And a good example of this is chlorosulfuron.
looking at some of the ease, uh, the earliest uh, pesticides, we're talking about things like HCH or beta BHC. These were first synthesized in the 1800s. They started to be identified by the 1900s. In 1912, it came under the common name of lindane, but it really wasn't until 1942 that they really discovered that it had a pesticide action. DDT was first synthesized in 1874, and then Mueller in 1939 actually discovered its pesticide properties and won a Nobel Prize for that. DDT became one of the most popular pesticides in the world. It was a broad-spectrum pesticide. It targeted only invertebrates, and it targeted the nerves and muscles of the invertebrates, of the mosquitoes and the flies. And the vertebrates was not thought to have any effect, so we thought it was safe for humans and pets and things like that. Later, though, in the last uh, few decades, we have discovered there are some endocrine disruptor properties of DDT, and there is some talk that it might be possibly a carcinogen. Now, DDT works by being a sodium channel activator, meaning that if you have a, a sodium channel in a cell or in a tissue, it basically locks that sodium channel open, and it causes continuous nerve impulses so that the, the nerve cells don't stop triggering, and it causes tremors, convulsions, and death. But DDT, for its time, was considered to be the wonder chemical. You'd go to the beach, and trucker, uh, trucks would pull up to the beach and start spraying the beach and covering the dunes with DDT. You go to the public swimming pool, and they would they would spray DDT all over the surface of the swimming pool. You'd have paint that was impregnated at DDT. You'd have wallpaper for nurseries that had DDT in it. So it was considered to be a very safe way of getting rid of mosquitoes and other disease vectors. And it's a very controversial compound. It's Since the 1950s, we've had 1.8 million tons of exposure worldwide. But in 1962, Rachel Carson published a book called Silent Spring. In this, she related tales of friends and neighbors talking about the songbirds disappearing. And she started to realize that the environment might be being harmed by this pesticide. And this was started to be linked to eggshell thinning and possible carcinogenic effects and resistant to DDT. By 1972, the U.S. had banned DDT for general use. And 1991, 26 countries had banned the use of DDT. But it is still manufactured today in India. Currently, there have been some calls for the return of DDT with some recent outbreaks of of some disease. Uh, specifically, when we had the Zika outbreak several years ago, there were calls to possibly bring back limited uses of DDT to combat the mosquitoes that were passing on the Zika virus. And there have also been called into questions whether DDT is actually a carcinogen. DDT continues to be a very controversial pesticide. No one can really doubt that it's a very effective against disease vectors. That's why it is still produced in countries such as India. It's very effective against malaria and typhoid, and malaria kills almost one million people a year currently. In 1953, in India, there were 75 million cases a year of malaria and over 800,000 deaths, and this was before the widespread use of DDT. About a decade later, in 1966, they have a decade of applying DDT, and those dropped to less than one million cases a year of malaria and no deaths. But DDT is very problematic. It is a bioaccumulator. It means it accumulates in, in biological matrices. It accumulates in human beings and animals and tissue. It's also a biomagn 
magnifier, meaning that as you go up the food chain, you combine all of the different sources, and the higher up the food chain you are, the more amount of accumulation of DDT you'll get in your tissue. It's also a very persistent chemical. It does not break down real well in the environment, and it's very resistant to weathering and other environmental factors. The use of DDT and the, and the banning of DDT actually did spur some of the changes we have in our pesticide regulations. Pesticide regulation started in 1947, where the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, or the FIFRA Act, it was a collaboration between the House Committee on Agriculture and the USDA and industry to give you a truth in labeling law. This was not a regulatory law, it was a truth in labeling law. What is being applied to your products? In the 1950s, you had now the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. The Pesticide Control Amendment, the PSA, set safety limits on food. The Food Additives Amendment, the FAA, banned carcinogenic substances. And then in 1959, was set up the first pesticide registry. By 1960s, you now had Rachel Carson publishing articles in the New Yorker about pesticide safety, and then you called for 1964, the amendment for the cancellation of pesticides, meaning that pesticides could be removed from the registry or removed from being uh, put to use. 1970s, you had the EPA created in 1970. 1972, you had the Federal Environmental Pesticides Control Act, which forced industries to start performing safety testing. 1988 was the amendment for the re-registration of pesticides. So now pesticides that were originally on the registry needed to go through a re-registration process. They had to provide tolerances, the maximum acceptable residue limits for each pesticides in the food. And 1996, the Food Quality Protection Act. This was specifically for the exposure of children to other dangerous chemicals in their food. And then, of course, over the last decade, we've had the Food Modernization Safety Act, which goes even further to, to help us try to protect the food supply in the U.S. If you have a pesticide, you can go for different types of registration. You can have uh, your federal registration. You can go through the full process. You can ask for an emergency exemption, and this is, would be something in a case where there is a new disease, like the Zika, where the EPA or the state and federal agencies allow an unregistered pesticide for a specific area for a specific use. So if there was a pesticide that combated uh, the Zika mosquito and it was still in the registration process, an emergency exemption could be granted so that pesticide could be used for the short term for that instance. Then pesticide companies also get experimental use permits. This allows the manufacturers to field test uh, their own products. They, they get to do R&D on their products. And then state-specific registration. So a regist uh, state can register a specific pesticide for a specific use, or they can register them for multiple uses. The registration process starts with the EPA asking for the list of ingredients, the site or the crop it will be used on, what the amount will be used, how often it will be used, what's the frequency that it will be applied. They also want to know what the storage and disposal conditions are for when this pesticide is no longer in use. The company that is making the pesticide then has to present all of their data on all their ingredients and all the safety of those ingredients using the EPA guidelines. They have to give toxicity results, acute toxicity and chronic toxicity. How is this going to affect acutely in the very short term, and how will it affect the environment or organisms in the long term? And finally, what are the environmental consequences of the pesticide? How does it break down? How does it respond in the environment? 
the overall time period for this registration process could be anywhere from six to nine years, the cost of millions or tens of millions of dollars. The pesticide registry currently has uh, close to 2,000 conventional pesticides and a couple dozen biopesticides in the database. So we're, we're talking about 2,000, give or take a bit. Uh, there are about 100 or so conventionally fully registered pesticides. So out of that 1,000, about 100 are actually registered. And then there's another 600 or so in review, uh, about 200 or so in re-registration status, and then you have your, your pending status, which are about a dozen or so. So out of all of the pesticides, we have only have a very small handful that are fully registered. Some of the most popular pesticides in the world, actually the most popular pesticide in the world, is something you every homeowner probably has in, in their shed or in their basement or garage. It's glyphosate. It's called Roundup. So we use about 200 million pounds a year of glyphosate. Some other popular pesticides are atrazine, imidacloprid, that's the one for the bee collapse, and carbaryl. Glyphosate, like I said, is a broad-spectrum herbicide, so you know that it, it kills weeds. It was discovered in 1970, and it was officially marketed in 1974, and 200 million pounds a year are used. And it also began the commercial GMO revolution. You would start to see that the genetic code of different plants, like soybeans, corn, and, and other products, started having a component that was resistant. So it would be like glyphosate-ready corn, glyphosate-ready soybeans. They'd call it actually Roundup-ready, Roundup-ready soybeans, Roundup-ready corn. And it's used, of course, on things like corn, soybeans, alfalfa, cotton. So it's used on, on quite a few uh, staple crops in the U.S. Now, most states' Department of Agriculture have lists of approved pesticides. So if you happen to be growing uh, beans, you could go into the state that you live in and find out that, well, yeah, I'm allowed to use dimethoate for my beans as an insecticide. I'm allowed to use copper sulfate for a fungicide, and I can use something else for as an herbicide. If you're growing something else like a carrot, there's a different list. So there are different state-approved lists. California has huge lists because they're a very agricultural-heavy state, so you can see basically in any topic the list of pesticides. But then what happens when you have a crop that's not covered? Of course, we have our brand-new industry of cannabis. So where are those lists of pesticides coming from? Where are they getting the list of pesticides, and who is administering these lists? Because the EPA, being a federal entity, is not working to approve or disapprove pesticides for cannabis use. Some of the crops with the highest pesticide use would be, of course, in the U.S., corn. There could be anywhere of 200 million pounds of active ingredient or 300 million pounds of active pesticides being used on corn in the U.S. in a year. Soybeans is also very heavy, potatoes, cotton, wheat, so all of the, the typical crops that you would think about. Which leads us to pesticide residues in the food we eat. Every year, there's publicized the Dirty Dozen, a consumer safety group publicizes the worst fruits and vegetables that have the highest amount of pesticide levels found uh, for fruits and vegetables in the U.S. And most of these are fruits and vegetables that you eat in an entirety or you eat the skin. So you eat like celery or snap peas or spinach, strawberries has consistently always been on the list, grapes, and also things like nectarines and apples. So they have very high content of pesticide residues. 
out of all the agricultural products produced in the U.S., only less than 1% is actually tested. Agricultural products that are imported into the U.S., less than 0.1% is tested. Unfortunately, where do we use the pesticides? Why do we use the pesticides? Well, it seems that more than 40% of pesticides are applied for appearance. So 40% of the pesticides applied to the crops, to the apples, to the strawberries, to the cucumbers, is to make the food look pretty. Make sure you get an apple that doesn't have a blemish on it. So just to kind of go over where the history went, we all started with defending ourselves against parasites and pests. That was the the common goal for pest control. We all wanted to defend ourselves. We didn't want to get sick. We didn't want to get bitten by mosquitoes or flies or fleas. And as agriculture developed, then we wanted to protect our own crops. When war came around, then we started synthesizing pesticides to protect health and to win the war, to have healthier soldiers that were not subject to disease. And then when that was over, we started saying, well, now we can increase crop yield and we can increase the way crops look. And present day, 40% of pesticides or more are used for appearance, with less than 1% being tested. So we kind of started off with health, and we're kind of now heading towards how things look. Well, what's the next step? There's a lot of talk about genetically modified organisms, and do you include a component that allows for uh, you know, pests to, to be repelled? Do you engineer pest organization and, and pest controls into your actual product from this point on? And that, I'm sure, will be the, the next question for, for the next decades. So thank you very much for sitting and listening about the history of pesticides with us, and we hope you tune in again. Thank you for tuning in to Spec Speak Science. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find content similar to this, such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more at specsertipref.com. Please feel free to like and subscribe to Spec Speak Science wherever you find your podcasts. From all of us at Spec Certiprep, We thank you for tuning in and look forward to bringing you future episodes.